Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Welcome to the Crux. Today, we're over the moon to welcome to the Crux a good friend and former colleague, Helene Klasky. Mike, I, I think this is the first time someone who's worked with both of us has been on the podcast. That's right, unless you unless you don't count your daughter. Oh, that's right. Sarah, exactly. Well, I, I don't count my daughter, right? She's never worked for me. Not, not in a professional sense, you know, but... You know, as part of this discussion today, since Helene has worked for both of us, I do plan to ask her which of us she preferred. So that'll come later in the conversation. Helene is the Chief Communications Officer for Activision, Activision Blizzard, a role she's held since March 2020. This is the company that most of you know make games like Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, and Candy Crush. I should note up front that I do not play video games, not because I'm a snob about them, but because I've tried and I am remarkably bad at them. At Activision Blizzard, Helene oversees global, internal, and external communications. Helene, when you look at it and you go back through her career, really has a model communicator's resume, meaning she's had diverse experiences working at the highest levels of government, business, entertainment, and education. Before Activision Blizzard, she served as CCO of Sound Exchange, which is a nonprofit collective rights management organization designated by Congress to collect and distribute digital performance royalties for sound recordings. Prior to that, she served as chair of Burson Marsteller's U.S. Public Affairs and Crisis Practice, where she worked with Mike. And earlier, I had the pleasure of working with Helene at GE, where she established a global public affairs function and later served as CCO for GE Energy Management. If that's not enough, and for most people it is, but not for Helene, she was CCO at Yale University and has worked in the U.S. government as Deputy Assistant Secretary at the U.S. Department of Treasury for Public Affairs and Deputy Assistant U.S. Trade Representative for Public Affairs. Whew, Helene, that's a lot. I don't think we have any time to do any questions. Welcome <laughs> to the crux. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Helene, your career, as I just went through, has taken you to the biggest institutions of government, private business, entertainment, education, all very different spaces and places. What were you drawn to in these very different opportunities? Is there a thread that connects these organizations and experiences for you? Sure. Well, first, it's great to be here and great to see both of you. And there's no way, one thing as a communicator, you learn to avoid conflict whenever possible. So there's no way I'm answering that question um, that you posed at the beginning. Um, but it's really fun being here. And it's it's been far too long due to this funny thing in the world called COVID that we've all seen each other. And Gary and I usually get a little 
cup of coffee in Rhinebeck, but this trip was one day to see family I hadn't seen in almost two years. So it was a packed trip. Wow. Um, listen, my career has been pretty nonlinear, um, one might say, and I've bounced from industry to industry. Some could say I can't keep a job and others would say I've been really, really lucky <laughs> to get to work for extremely smart, competent people in all levels from, you know, cabinet secretaries to CEOs of major companies to nonprofits. And now I'm in the entertainment sector, which is, I would say, the most wildly different of all the places I've worked, mainly because of the employee base more than anything else. But most of all, I've just been very fortunate as I've worked for very purpose-driven institutions. And I've been very picky about where I've worked and wanted to ensure that I was always working with very smart, well-intentioned people at companies and institutions that I believed in with a shared set of values. And as a result, I think I've been able to explore and grow and learn in more ways than I ever could have imagined had I stayed at one place or in one sector or in one industry. And when I was starting my journey right out of college, when I didn't ever think I'd be a communicator and I kind of fell into it at the Department of State, and when I felt that was my calling, I just feel really fortunate to have been able to work at all these different types of places. That's great. Thanks for joining us. It's great to see you, Helene. Now, as Gary pointed out, you went to Activision on the front end of, of COVID back in March of 2020. How did you consider this opportunity? I mean, it's so different than a lot of the other things that you've done. So what led you to take the position with Activision Blizzard? And are you a secret gamer? So I have to admit, like Gary, I'm not. And I think the last time I played a video game, besides for Candy Crush, which I had to try out as I was interviewing, um, was, and this ages me, but was, I think, we Fit. So, um, and one wouldn't really count that as a gaming. I do have two teenage boys. They, too, are not big gamers. Oh, wow. They like um, Madden, and that's about it. So um, it wasn't that. It was the CEO reached out to me. And he has just is so passionate about what gaming does and the communities it's it creates and the joy it creates around the world. We have over 400 million people play our games and his infectious and passionate way of talking about the company, the business, the industry, how we could grow in that industry really sold me on it. And they got big through a series of acquisitions and they never caught up their comms teams and other core functions as they were acquiring new companies. So there was a real opportunity to build a comms team there. They had great communicators that could talk about the games, but they really didn't have a corporate function. And so one thing that was really alluring to me is the prospect of building a corporate function at a well-respected company. So the company over that two-year period has been on somewhat of a roller coaster from the early days of the pandemic. Clearly, one thing that was greatly helpful from a financial performance standpoint is that more of us were indoors, more people were playing games. At the same time, there were crises that emerged in the business. How difficult was it to 
focus the company's strategy just as you were in this dynamic environment with all these issues and the pandemic? It's been hard. It's been, I've been there about two years. I began the Ides of March. Perhaps I should have read into that a little more. So, um, <laughs> so my very first day on the job was the first day of lockdown. I was supposed to fly out to LA and start in the office. And I remember texting wow. um, my boss, Bobby Kodak, the uh, day before. And that's when people were starting the chatter of lockdown, but it hadn't quite happened yet. And I said, can we chat about me coming to LA? I'm a teeny bit nervous, but want to talk to you about it. And he wrote back, no. Mm -hmm. And I said to my husband, oh, wow, what did I get myself into? Wow. And then he called me and said, of course, you're not getting on an airplane now. There's nothing we can't do remotely. And there's nothing more important than the health, your health and safety and the health and safety of everyone. So I'm like, Okay, I had taken that no a little differently when I first like popped up on my screen. So it was, it was, so my first day on the job was, um, you know, we have close to 10,000 employees in 190 markets around the world. And so it was, how do we go to lockdown in all these different markets that had very different rules, right? Some people in China had already been in lockdown, others felt like they were already at the other side of wow. it when the US and Canada was going into lockdown. London had its own way of dealing with all of this that was complicated. Korea had a very different system. And when I started, there was so much chaos in the system that local leaders were making their own rules. And they were making their own rules, not just on safety issues, but on benefits for employees. So some were saying, yeah, go buy yourself new computers, new $15,000 X, new this. Other people were complaining that how come we're not sending them donuts to their home? Because when they walk into the office, there were donuts. So partnering wow. with our chief people officer, we decided, you know, within 10 hours of me being there, we needed a common set of principles agreed to by our leadership of what benefits everyone needs. So we increased, we'd pay for increased internet access. People that were on systems that could not be replicated at home and were in markets where it was okay for them to go to the office under very um, prescribed situations, you know, they got exemptions. Other people who we, you know, we have a very, very young workforce. So there's a lot of people that didn't even own a desk or a lamp or a chair. You know, they had their bed, you know, and they were in a studio apartment with their bed and their mm. hot plate. And so people would say, can I buy a chair? Can I buy wow. a, a desk from Ikea? So <laughs> it was this whole new world of people. And then at the same time, the health risks really were dramatically different in markets. And we had several people, especially in Europe, in um, living in multi-generational situations and other people in the States, especially that had roommates and that may have different ways of taking care of themselves and we would hope our own employees would. So our CEO quickly put out that we're gonna pay for all COVID costs for you and your family members. And then when testing became available, it was testing and vaccines were different because governments paid for those, but we made them accessible. But to this day, 
Um, all COVID tests for you and your family are paid for by the company. Now they're easier to get. You can get them at home, but if you need a PCR test. And so it really kind of started creating this culture of care. And then figuring out as the years went on, it people really needed more mental health than physical health care. And so how did we help with that? And I think, Mike, it was my third day on the job, and we launched a global newsletter that the company never had. And it was launched really to share information all about COVID, benefits they were getting, restrictions, how to do their work, setting up a inbox for problems people were having. Some of them were silly, what we got, like, why won't you give me donuts? But most of them <laughs> were, you know, Zoom doesn't work in my market. Or I really need to meet in person because we're transferring the design to the next phase and we need to do this. Am I permitted yeah. to do it? And so this this became a great vehicle. We've since more, morphed the newsletter into a more traditional company newsletter where we talk about everything from, you know, trainings to product launches to new benefits to, you know, don't forget to set your goals etc. But in the early days, it served as a great vehicle. And I have to say, I always find when you start a new job and they throw you right into the deep end, it is the easiest way to thrive. You know, you're not figuring out what you're doing. You're like, oh gosh, I better do this right or I'm not going to be here tomorrow. Well, it's almost better to enter when there's a crisis or when there's a real need. Exactly. And the one thing we learned during this whole, as you said, people were playing games more. Yeah. They were playing, there were a lot of new audiences. People were playing <laughs> games for longer periods of time. Our CEO was quite prescient. It really was creating joy in a period where people needed it. But the other thing it was doing that we hadn't quite counted on to the extent it was doing it, it was creating a safe online community. And so it actually became a social media platform in a lot of our games because people loved who they were in a game. It wasn't like some other social media platforms where it's like who you're trying to be or want to be. You know, you had your avatar self. So you already created who you yeah. wanted to be and you weren't pretending. Yeah, like, you're talking virtually anyway right. to a lot and of And so people were really lying. I mean, relying on this. We had some beautiful stories of folks coming back from Iraq and they talked to their whole squadron in Call of Duty. They didn't use any other social media platform. We had instances of people coming with stories of who grew up in communities that were a little less tolerant of sexual orientation or sexual identity, but in games they felt very safe to come out as their authentic selves and have a whole community supporting them. Hmm. So I think all those beautiful stories help those of us burning the candle at both ends just going. That's great. That's terrific. And, and you know, you've inspired me. Maybe I, I will go back and try games again. You know, <laughs> yeah, I need an avatar or something to to uh, to for myself to communicate with folks. I I do want to come back to some of the issues that you were dealing with uh, over the last two years, in addition to COVID, there were there have been media stories, uh, of course, about allegations or assertions involving the CEO's behavior and the company's overall treatment of, of women. But I want to take this back to that discussion, back to a time you spoke to my crisis class, I believe, a few years ago, actually less than that. 
And it was a mostly female class. And one of the students asked you this question about how how do you thrive in a what has been a male-dominated industry, Elaine? And you gave a great answer that the students remarked on and loved even through the end of that rest of that semester. And I wonder if you could try to replicate what you told my students that day in, uh, in answering that question. So I wish I could remember what I told that <laughs> had such stickiness, but, but I'll say what I always say, and that is, you know, most of my life I've worked in male-dominated industries. I mean, whether it's engineers at GE, whether it was diplomats at the State Department or economists at Treasury, the gaming industry is like overwhelmingly male. And I think you succeed, you thrive, you find your value just by doing well and showing up. And, you know, I remember, Gary, you once described me to someone who said, you know, what's Helene like? And you said, oh, she's the one that gets stuff done and gets it done well. And I've always thought that was such a compliment because that's, <laughs> that's what I've true. always tried to do. Like, go there, do what you're supposed to do, do it well. Your gender becomes erased, right? It's like people just want people that are going to show up and exactly. do it well. To young women, I really try to coach them and counsel them. Show up as your authentic self. You don't have to try to be a guy, but don't ever be apologetic, I've never heard a male in a meeting say, oh, I'm sorry, I don't really agree with you. They just say, well, I don't agree with that. So show up that way. Don't apologize for who you are. Just show up, be real, and stand with your stand on your convictions. And, you know, I have found a big difference between a lot of male and female colleagues is males can argue in a room and leave the room and then go have a beer. Mm-hmm. And women can argue in a room and then someone leaves upset. And it's not healthy mm -hmm. because as long as you don't personalize the argument and you stick to the facts, it's just a factual disagreement. And that's okay. And exactly. I think um, um, I had a funny thing at work the other day where two colleague, a colleague and I had a, a very different opinion. And he just said, with all due respect, we're going to have to agree to disagree. And here's what I think. And then another colleague, male, also agreed with the one that disagreed with me and then sent me a Slack saying, I'm really sorry that I didn't back you on this. I'm like, no apologies. You didn't agree with my perspective. <laughs> I, I said, but the world's not binary. Exactly. So I don't know why we're approaching this issue that it's here or here. You know, the, the world's gray. And we need to approach answers in that gray. And so he's like, oh, that's a fair point, which led us to a separate discussion of how do you not really reach in the middle, but recognize there's a mushiness. Exactly. You can only do that well, in that Congress, you've right? Done... <laughs> exactly. That would be nice. <laughs> that would be nice. Well, you did a great job there, Helene, of replicating the answer that so inspired my students. You said something earlier that sort of opened my eyes to some of what's been going on during this pandemic and the crazy two years we've been in. You know, my background, Elaine, is only with one company, an industrial company. So when I think about what needs to be done for getting people settled into a, a flexible work schedule, I, I think in that setting, but boy, it's so different in your the business you're in now. 
right, in the tech industry. And and as you said, you have almost 10,000 employees. Was being a tech company an advantage in moving to remote work? And uh, I'm just looking for lessons here from some of our listeners who might draw on some of the things you said that they can apply. I think the advantage is we have a lot of introverts at our company. So in the early days of work from home, I don't think it was overwhelming to them. I think they are artists, designers, creators, engineers, being able to do that in their own space, free of distractions was almost freeing. I think it became more complicated is you're really good with your own own thoughts until you're not, right? And everyone thrives on the creative chaos process, right? And of stepping into someone's office and saying, mm-hmm. what do you think of this? Do you think this would work? And that feedback and the formalization <laughs> of all that as time went on became quite complicated both emotionally and physically. And we found that we did have to create some in-person pods when people got to certain stages of the games. But I do think, well, one, being a tech company and an entertainment company, you know, most people had equipment at home. We had to move some very large equipment to some people's homes. And then people that do some back-end stuff, like run the financial reports, right? They had to come in once a month to you know, the office and run those reports. You're not going to create a whole CPU room for someone for COVID to do. I think what was the hardest thing is for everyone, our company and every company around the world, is you had no concept of how long this was going to (laughs) last. So you couldn't design for long-term solutions when you were hoping it was a short-term problem, but you didn't want to design for such short-term solutions knowing it could last much longer. I think tech folks... And I think this generation, younger generation, you know, they're, they have a healthy attitude toward having to pivot, right? Great, great observation. And so people just knew these were unprecedented times. We all had to jump in. We all had to pivot. And people were very kind to each other. Like I'd see people on my team struggling and I would learn from other team members, right? Like, oh, Helene, can you reach out to so-and-so? their mom is sick or they're tired of being alone or they have a pre-existing condition and they haven't stepped outside in six months. Like, can we send them That's food? Great. And I was really touched by the empathy and the awareness of people mm-hmm. about their teammates and not just in my function, but across the company. And I really yeah. thought that in the midst of this eckiness brought out quiet beauty. I was just going to say about young people, I saw the same thing here at BU much the same kind of empathetic behavior in the students. Yeah. I also think there's something about a a universal challenge that everybody faces that, you know, it creates a a rallying inside the human soul, I think. So we've kind of hidden the big headline here, I think. (laughs) You know, um, Microsoft has uh, made an offer. There's a proposed acquisition on the table, $69 billion for the purchase of Activision Blizzard. Big deals are always times of uncertainties for a whole array of stakeholders, but primarily for employees. How are you working with company leaders to make sure 
the team remains focused on delivering what customers want. And, uh, you know, just as you're managing the issues of the deal and answering questions of regulatory bodies and other players. Sure. So this is going to be a long review process, a long regulatory review process in many countries have to, we require regulatory approval. It's not just in the States, it's in China, Japan, Europe. So, you know, it's going to be 12 to 18 months. And Mm -hmm. as a result, we have a lot of content we have to get out in that time period. You know, we are still responsible to our player communities, to our shareholders, and our employees still want to create great games. And so we are just working with them to stay really focused. There's there's normal angst and uncertainty, right? Of what does this mean for me? You know, mm-hmm. Microsoft has made it very clear they're buying people and content. And it's an all-cash deal, which is very significant as almost everyone in our company is an equity holder. So everyone, they want to do good. Yeah. Nobody wants to disappoint their players, right? I think that's what keeps our, our employee base going is how do yeah. you ensure you're getting out games? We have several games due to be released this year. And so people are very focused. They're, they're very, it's like at any company um, that makes things. You know, whether you're a GE or whether you're a gaming company is the timelines. You can't miss any of right. them and still get it out on time. And so that's what's keeping very people very focused and very energized. And people have been pretty excited mm-hmm. about the announcement. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, we talked a little bit about culture before. Um, and I imagine that internally and externally, one of the big questions around this deal is what's likely to happen to the corporate culture that currently exists at Activision Blizzard. If the deal goes through, you and your colleagues are actually moving, I think, at least what I can observe, is from a much more entrepreneurial entity to a more established one, albeit Microsoft is in tech and whatnot. But in today's world, Microsoft is a more mature company. What cultural issues or transitions are you beginning to prepare for or are you? Yeah, it's a great question. I would say we're not really yet. I I think that the part of Microsoft where um, the proposal is where Activision Blizzard would sit is in their gaming vertical. And they're very entrepreneurial there. I mean, what they've done with Xbox, with AI, Mm -hmm. with gaming has been, you know, magnificent. And so people are excited. They really respect the leader of that vertical. Mm -hmm. And so they're not looking at it as they're going from something hip to something old and duddy. (laughs) They're looking at it as they're going from something hip to a place with a lot of Mm -hmm. money to invest in gaming. And that excites people. Terrific. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I, I know you can't at this juncture delve into a lot of the details as you're in regulatory process in this whole merger effort, but I would love to learn two things, and, and, and I'll ask the first one and then pause, but one, how do you prep your team to make the legal and regulatory case from a communications point of view? Well, since we're being acquired, it's not 
my team mm -hmm. that does it. Mm -hmm. It's the acquiring mm -hmm. company that does all that. And so my role is really to be supportive to my, my counterpart and colleague at Microsoft and our legal team working with their legal team. Yeah. Now, you started to talk about the excitement of the employees from a vantage point of the product as opposed to even the look of, of, of the culture. What about this merger makes this transformative maybe for those players, for those consumers? What additional value will there be for them as these companies combine? Is there a platform play, given the fact that Microsoft has its own gaming platform? Is there perhaps even a metaverse play? What makes it special for consumers and customers? Sure. And I need to be careful how far sure. I can go here. But, you know, as both Bobby and Phil said at Day of Announce and CNBC interview and several other interviews they did, they really talked extensively about the metaverse play and really how, you know, one and one makes three, right? And so yeah. mm -hmm. you're taking just great talent from different companies and great games and then bringing that together. How do you do a whole new space? Bobby has talked about the depth of AI talent that Microsoft has that could really be game changing, mm -hmm. no pun intended, to our games. And so that there's been a lot of chatter out there about different platforms, about PlayStation, about Xbox. And we've made it very clear and Microsoft's made it very clear, you know, all agreements are being honored. Nothing's changing on that front, et cetera. I think people, um, you know, if the deal goes through, there's really two other big gaming giants. They're not who people necessarily think they are. They're Tencent and Sony. And um, mm -hmm. Tencent mm -hmm. already owns a lot of the American mm -hmm. gaming companies. And so this this could be really interesting. Mm -hmm. And it, we're really excited and have to be a more circumspect than, it, circumspect than my nature, given it, where it is in the regulatory process. <laughs> yeah, understood. Well, that's smart. And, and Helene, we, we certainly worked on a lot of big deals at GE. And I, and I have to say my work at GE on the Alstom deal, more than anything, has given me just a really great grounding in what mm -hmm. to expect, what we need to do, what we need to let others do, and, mm -hmm. and recognizing the excitement that could come out of something done right and done well, and also where the hiccups are and, to, and, the, and the landmines and to be careful. Well, that's the first time somebody said something good about the All Star deal in a long time, Elaine. So, so thank you for it that. Taught me things, you know. So nothing else. It taught me things. The same for me as well. I'm going to jump ahead here, or jump back, sure. maybe, to your last job. And and you and I have talked about this during some of our coffees about your work at Sound Exchange. I was always intrigued by the purpose of that organization. Can you tell our listeners about what it does? Sure. So Sound Exchange was born out of the Napster era. And what happened during that time is people figured out how to download music for free, which was amazing because a whole bunch of people heard music from a whole bunch of musicians they maybe didn't listen to beforehand. 
And the proliferation of music and the numbers of listeners just skyrocketed overnight. Yeah. The downside was musicians, um, singers and songwriters weren't getting um, remunerated for this. And so Congress passed a law that all digital service providers had to pay a certain percentage, go, went into a, a pot of money. And what SoundExchange basically did was took that pot of money, ran the list of whose music was being played and distributed it out. And in the time I was there, they wow. distributed, just to give you a sense of the magnitude of how much money is at stake, this is digitally distributed music, excluding Spotify, because they had some like weird cutout different deal. Over a billion dollars was wow. distributed. And so, you know, most people today are listening to their music digitally. They're not putting in records or eight tracks or CDs. And so now artists and songwriters are, you know, singers and songwriters are all getting um, compensated for the beautiful music they're creating that we're all enjoying every day. And it was a, you know, a super fun place to work pre-COVID. I don't know how much I would have enjoyed it during the last two years, because one of the benefits of it is every meeting, every event involved live music. Wonderful. So, you know, I had the opportunity to go to the Grammys twice. I got to go legitimately to clubs that I used to sneak in into high school. It was the only job interview I've ever had where they asked me what my first concert was. So it, it was a really fun place to work. Like I felt we were doing good in the service of musicians and I was having a heck of a good time while we were doing good who was so who was the most famous person you met i'm you know i'm a little celebrity gaga kind of person anybody good like did you have lunch with the weekend or something no, like that you know what was kind of the most fun for me is we were at a um there were a lot of events that were charitable events or or big events and then they would have a charity component of it and and they would recognize people for what they've done in the community and Cat Stevens, who I know doesn't go by that name anymore, was being recognized. And Dave Matthews did all his cover songs. Yeah, and I thought, yeah. how much fun <laughs> is that? Or Justin Timberlake was getting an award. And so instead of him just accepting the award, he ended up doing a 45-minute concert there, yeah. like at this dinner. And I am I'm have a soft spot for Dolly Parton. Very and cool. I got to attend cool. a couple events and where she was an honoree and she was amazing. I went, I spent some time in Nashville and went to the country music awards, which I'd never been to. I was in wow. LA for the Grammys, including the Grammys on the day Kobe died. Mm -hmm. And that was just a crazy juxtaposition of yeah, emotions I and, bet. and beautiful and surreal at the Staples center. Then is there were thousands of Kobe fans just lining the street. And then there were hundreds of people in their fancy Grammy clothes walking in. And, and I thought the Grammys did a really beautiful job at mm -hmm. on a, on a day that was sad for LA of playing mm -hmm. due respect to him while yeah. still honoring yeah. the musicians. Wow. That's, that's a lot more <laughs> exciting than the things we did at GE. We, you know, we, <laughs> We went to locomotive factories and things like that. Honey. Well, I got I, to see I, a jet I, engine being blown apart. That was super cool. Oh, well, there you go. There you go. But, but, but to that point, Helene, you were the director of media relations at the U.S. State Department for 10 years, then spokesperson and advisor to the U.S. trade rep, Charlene Barshevsky, and then an advisor to Treasury Secretary Lawrence Summer, 
all high wire acts dealing with complex and sensitive topics. So what I really want to know is given that amazing experience, what I think our listeners really want to know is why Gary wasn't working for you. <laughs> you know, that's a, a good question, teeny, Mike. Teeny bit a older very... than I am. I think that's why. <laughs> but, but more seriously, really though, what, what's something you learn from those high stakes governmental roles that shape how you think about communications in your role today? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this and throughout my career, and I really think being the calm in the middle of the storm is really the secret sauce to serving leaders well. You know, everyone gets so often so crazed and they take on the frenetic energy of the most nervous person in the room, where really you need to be the calmest person in the room. And then the noise finally starts quieting down when the calm can prevail. And so that's been my, you know, from the very beginning is trying to stay calm and centered and so that then I could give the best advice. The other thing is I've been a really, really, mm-hmm. really lousy sleeper for the last two, three decades of my life. And somehow I never thought it would serve me well, but somehow it has enabled me to function fairly well on limited sleep. And I think in a lot of these jobs, the ability to function well on limited sleep is quite key to the success yeah. of the job. Yeah, yeah. You think about those government jobs as kind of work hard, play hard, right? Yeah, and, you know, we would often, when I was at Treasury, I had the opportunity to work with then Deputy Secretary Stu Eisenstadt, and he was leading the effort on Holocaust reparations. And so we would work all day. And then we'd leave the office at 7 at night. We'd catch a 10 p.m. flight to Europe in coach. He would not be in coach, but I'd be in coach. And then we'd land at 7 in the morning and, you know, have 30 minutes to shower and down a cup of coffee (laughs) and then get to 15 hours in negotiations. And kind of just training your body to be able to compartmentalize, be in the moment and focus on that was really key. And I, I often say to my team, you know, let's not lose the important in the midst of the urgent. And back mm-hmm. to the beginning of what you said is how yeah. do you maintain strategy with all the chaos going around you? And I think it's always mm-hmm. remembering like what's the North Star, what's the important that you can say, hey guys, we got to muddle through the noise right now, but let's not forget our North Star and what's the most important. Yeah, that's what I was always most impressed with you when we worked together at Burson is you were able to keep your team focused and calm. And to the other item that both you and Gary pointed to is you got things done and you got things done with great aplomb. So thank you. Yeah. So, so last question along those lines, Helene is, is tell us about your team and, and it's been two years and you said you had a chance to build, which is, I know something you've always liked to do. And tell us about your team and, and how you've kept them fresh. You've mentioned a few things during this crazy, frenetic period that you've been going through. You know, the secret sauce is always hiring the best talent. My first hire was none other than one of my first hires at GE, who has been my right hand. And just, <laughs> you know, we know each other so well that we're able to read each other before something 
you're about to fall off that cliff and bring each other back. I've hired someone who worked for me twice before, once at Sound Exchange, once at Burson. Again, people doing that and then just building a team of experts that know. And as I've said, I really try to get the team to remember sometimes we just need to breathe, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes we have to solve it for today, but sometimes we just need mm -hmm. to breathe and to remember this headache is going to be here tomorrow. So if you need a few hours off, if you need to take a walk, if you need to have dinner. I had two people on my team get married last year and like four have babies. So I figure people are wow. listening, they are breathing, they are taking a little time, <laughs> that's happening. So They're doing working. more than breathing. <laughs> so something's working. <laughs> At least you had some time to do that, right? <laughs> well, the, the fact, Helene, that you, know, you mentioned you hired a couple of people who worked for you previously, that's always a good sign for a leader, right? That the folks are loyal to you and want to stay and continue working with you. And yeah, I've been lucky terrific. that way. That's so, terrific. Thank you guys both so much for having me here. It's been so yeah, much fun. So our guest has been Helene Klasky, the CCO of Activision Blizzard. Nothing going on there right now at that company. <laughs> thank you, Helene. This has been really a fantastic discussion. Thank you. My yeah, pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to The Crux and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter. And you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.